We've never seen anything like this before because all states are saying similar things, but not identical things. Medieval crimes are being committed by modern people. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. I come with clean hands. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. For today, we're going to look at what is in vogue among states intervening in the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, the UN highest court, as third parties. Yeah, this is to do with uh, Ukraine-Russia, who's on the list so far, who are our uh, uh, cast of characters here. So the list that I have seen is Estonia, Finland, Ireland, Poland, Denmark, Italy, France, Romania, Sweden, Germany, the UK, Latvia, Lithuania, New Zealand, Spain, a latecomer. Um, I don't know when exactly this will go out, but uh, as we speak, Spain is the latest one. And the EU and the US have also kind of sort of joined. Well, this is where I have to break in and give our listeners an emergency update. Uh, Since we recorded this in late September, five, yes, five more states have joined to intervene. And they are Portugal, Austria, Luxembourg, Greece and Croatia. And now we return to Steph back in October explaining what this case is all about. This is a strange case before the International Court of Justice because Ukraine is invoking the Genocide Convention, but not to say that Russia committed genocide, although they might later, and I'm sure we'll get into that with Juliet. But for now, they're saying Russia is misusing the Genocide Convention. Uh, we tackled this whole thing in an earlier podcast that you can listen to, but very briefly, Russia said Ukraine is committing genocide. That's why we have to invade. And Ukraine is saying Um, you are abusing the Genocide Convention by using this pretext. I think I get why we should tackle this, because it looks like a lot of states are suddenly getting engaged with the ideas of genocide and and, and what it means to to invoke the Genocide Convention, their own obligations maybe even, which is always a big thing with states. Are they obliged to do anything? And of course, I do also want to get into whether we think there might also be another case about genocide in Ukraine. Uh, And maybe we'll also look at the evidence that we're seeing so far. First, let us uh, introduce our guest. That's Juliet McIntyre from the University of South Australia. Hi, Juliet. Hello. Thank you for having me back. So why don't we start with the goings on at the International Court of Justice? Why uh, are so many states joining in? Yeah, it's um, it's 16 on, on current numbers, um, which is completely unprecedented. There have been only a, a couple of successful interventions under the Article 63 mechanism that states are currently using in the Ukraine case. So two of them were successful and those two just involved a single state intervening, New Zealand in the whaling case, for example. So the numbers are really something we haven't seen before. Again, a quick reminder, we have since gone up to 22 states intervening. Anyway, back to the recording. Um, What makes this particular set of interventions different from the others apart from the numbers? We have to look back a little bit at the Article 63 mechanism and what it was intended for, because that reflecting on that makes this whole thing really quite interesting. Article 63 was originally drafted to act as a kind of means by which states, parties, 
to a multilateral treaty could come before the court and offer their interpretation of certain parts of the treaty. If you think of states as being like the owners of the treaty, they're the ones that drafted the treaty. Um, and the whole idea was that, um, you know, you could create this means by which you could have a harmonious interpretation. Everyone agrees this is the you know mechanism. We've all come before the court. We're all bound by the court's interpretation. We all agree to that. Um, and the states were there to sort of help the court to come up with, you know, the best possible interpretation of a treaty. What we're seeing now, though, which is really interesting, is that this Article 63 mechanism is being used not for harmonious interpretation, although that's a part of it, um, but also as a means of a sort of cooperative condemnation, if you will. States getting together to really offer their, you know, views on the wrongdoing of the um, respondent state. So it's a kind of show of solidarity as well as a question of legal interpretation. Uh, so, so it seems to be also very much a political statement more than just hitting the, the legal notes. But what will the court do with these interventions? Do they have to accept them? Will it be uh, in, in previous cases where there were interventions, you had like speaking time? What are the rules? Does the court have to allow all 16 to be in? Because we'll be in for very long hearings in that case. Yeah. So, I mean, you, the procedure is my favorite thing. So, you know, forgive me if I go on here. I said there were two previous successful interventions, both of which involved one state. There was one attempt um, back uh, in the early 90s where four Pacific states tried to all intervene as a group. And that was in the request for an examination case where New Zealand was trying to reopen one of the nuclear tests cases. But we never got anywhere with that because they intervened and then the case was dismissed out of hand. And of course, then the, the interventions just fell away. So we don't know exactly how that would have been managed. But what's interesting in that case is all of the states had the same agent. So there was one um, Samoan diplomat who was the agent for all of those states. So you can imagine that in that case, they would have just made one collective speech before the court. Um, even though they submitted different written documents, all those written documents were word for word identical, save or save for changes of the names of the states. Um, so it was a much more straightforward sort of a situation. It was effectively a single intervention. We've never seen anything like this before because all states are saying similar things, but not identical things. Some are very much focused on the question of jurisdiction. Some are focused on jurisdiction and merits. Um, so how is the court going to handle this? Well, they've already done their written pleading. That's the declaration. You asked whether that automatically gets them before the court, and the answer is no. So even though Article 63 intervention is a right under the statute, the court has previously said that it still has to decide whether these interventions are admissible. Um, so there is a bit of a question about whether the court will say these are inadmissible. My personal theory is that when we're looking at 16 states, there is no way the court is going to really be able to turn around and say, no, you don't have a right of appearance here. I think the kind of, obviously the court only takes legal matters into account, but I do feel like when you have 16 states telling you that they have a right to appear before you, um, that kind of unanimous voice is a little bit hard to resist. And the court has previously said it's a right. So, you know, I think it would be a real stretch to say the court's going to find it inadmissible. But getting back to the whole procedure, how are they going to manage this? Here's how it's all going to play out. So initially, 
if Russia decides to get involved in the case, of course, back in February, early March, when they had the provisional measures hearing, Russia didn't even show up. Um, but if Russia decides to get involved, they can object to the admissibility of these interventions. So that's part one. So if Russia does that, then there will have to be a hearing dedicated purely to the question of whether the interventions are admissible. You'll get 16 states plus Russia plus the Ukraine making arguments. Then there's the question of the court's jurisdiction. So all of the interveners want to say something about jurisdiction. In fact, jurisdiction is really the big question. And we can come back to why that is in a minute, if you like. So they're all going to want to say something at the jurisdictional phase. Usually before the court, there's two rounds of hearing in any phase. So you have your first round of pleadings, and then you have what is essentially a rebuttal for your, you know, uh, anyone who's a mooter or, a, you know, a debater at home. I'm assuming that in order to keep things manageable, the court might say to the interveners, you get one round, not two. You don't get a rebuttal as well. But it's not altogether clear how they're going to deal with that. And then, of course, there's the actual merits. Assuming the court says, yes, we have jurisdiction to proceed, then there's a question of the merits. So you could end up having three rounds of oral hearings with at least 18 parties. Now, has the court dealt with this kind of thing before? It has in advisory opinions. So in advisory opinions, you get loads of states. The Chagos Islands case, you had 22 states um, making oral submissions. But it's a little bit different because what they, and this is me going on as a proceduralist, so do tell me to be quiet if it's boring for your listeners. But what is different here is that this is a contentious case. You've got two parties, two main players, and the interveners aren't main players. They're just interveners. They're just people who want to, you know, get involved and have a say. So the court has to be really careful here to make sure that they don't in any way kind of disadvantage either Ukraine or Russia as the actual parties to the case and that they make sure that they get the headline act, basically. I'm mixing all my metaphors here. But making sure they get the main attention, they get to make all of their arguments and that dealing with these interveners don't unbalance things too much. Whereas in an advisory opinion, everyone gets equal speaking time. It's fairly quick. It's fairly limited. But no one is a, no one is a party in an advisory opinion case. So there's not this balancing act that has to take place. So that's what makes it very interesting for me anyway. I can hear all kinds of threads from this that might be interesting to pick up. But I suppose my main question is, I always have the impression for people like you who are commenting on the court don't actually know what is going to happen next, which I find so curious that the court seems to make up its own rules all the time. That's a really great question. I mean, the court has a lot of flexibility. It has said uh, a number of times in previous cases, you know, we don't have to, um, in fact, right back from the Permanent Court of International Justice days, it said, you know, we don't have to set the same store by rules of procedure as, say, a domestic court does, because we're here, we're dealing with sovereign states, and we want to offer, you know, really flexible, um, tangible, accessible justice. So the court will really genuinely bend over backwards to make things work for states. But that's where, again, this, this case is tricky because they need to remember, and I'm sure they will, but they need to remember that, you know, it's Ukraine and Russia who are the parties and you don't want the interveners to essentially kind of take over the case. What we've seen is that the court has published all these requests for intervention. And they also published the legal reasonings uh, of the states with them. Can you kind of highlight what the common thread is and what the what the differences are between some of the states? Yeah, so um, I, I, I'll do my best, but it's interesting because there are lots of similarities and then the di differences are really, really subtle. Um, 
and I'm working, I'm working with some colleagues um, actually at the moment to do an empirical project trying to measure exactly where these similarities and differences are because tracking it is, is fascinating. But look, on the whole, the gist of all of them is that they very much come in support of Ukraine. So they are all there saying to the court, even though what Ukraine is doing in asking you to take this case to say that there was no genocide in Ukraine and that Russia's invasion on that basis was you know, essentially fraudulent, um, even though that's an unusual request, you absolutely have the power to make that declaration. So that's one point that they're all unanimous in, saying Article 9 of the Genocide Convention permits um, a, a state to come to ask the court to say, in fact, there was no genocide, not that there was genocide, basically a negative declaration. So it's well within the powers of the court, and it's very unanimous across the board that that's what everyone tends to think. Then one of the points of difference, which is quite interesting, is in respect of the rights of other states to use force where there may be genocide. So on the whole, most of the intervening states are taking the line that this is never permitted. It's complete, like, forget about it. Um, so that's very interesting in and of itself. If you look at the, I'm pretty sure it's New Zealand, um, but I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, um, they take the line that it's mostly 99.99% of the time forbidden except for humanitarian intervention. They kind of bring that up as a potential, you know, issue. The United Kingdom, on the other hand, who have previously been quite vociferously in favour of um, responsibility to protect doctrine and all that, they don't say anything about it at all. They are like, no, no, no using force to, you know, stop a genocide. Um, then you've got stuff about, you know, abuse of rights, about good faith interpretation of the treaty, um, all these other kinds of different points that are being made. But it's interesting, Steph, you said the... The declarations are on the website. What's not on the website is Ukraine's memorial. So that won't go up until the start of the oral proceedings. And what we don't know is how similar Ukraine's arguments are to any of the interveners. And so what we don't know is whether, for example, what the interveners is saying aligns with what Ukraine actually wants to achieve here or whether the interveners are kind of going too far or getting in the way a bit with their arguments, um, muddying the waters one would assume there has been a little bit of backroom chatter between various ministries for foreign affairs, various lawyers to align things, but not necessarily. So it will be really interesting to see what Ukraine, the actual party, has to say when we when we see their memorial. When we're talking about the UK not saying anything about intervening, that is odd, right? Because there is Iraq, there is Kosovo and the NATO bombing of uh, of uh, targets in Serbia and, and uh, Montenegro to, to stop the uh, Kosovo conflict in the 1990s, where the UK, with and without explicit UN permission, joined in these things. So you think, so you think it's a... a deliberate omission by the UK, just to not talk about it. And also then the question is, what does the US say? Because they are a bit weird with the genocide convention, right? Yeah, so the US submission is a bit different. It actually focuses more on um, the merits than a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other submissions. Um, but they also, at least on my reading of it, um, they don't say anything about that. They take the very strong line that, you know, you can't invade another state 
if you are concerned that they are committing genocide. So they take that quite strict, um, strict sort of a line as well. Um, and that this idea of punishment for the genocide convention as well, that's another thing that's quite unanimous, including in the US, is that they all say it's criminal punishment. So it's a question of, you know, apprehending the individuals who are responsible for orchestrating the genocide or committing um, acts that amount to genocide and punishing them through criminal sanctions. It's not, the genocide convention isn't and shouldn't be used as, um, you know, uh, a way of states invading other states if they think genocide is going on. And what's going to be interesting is where the court, you know, positions itself in, in this because, you know, there, there, is, there is this this R2P doctrine kind of hovering in the background a little bit. Can I just intervene there and say R2P, responsibility to protect so the you know obviously we've had in we've had military interventions in order to you know arguably protect populations or with the Rwandan genocide you know there was a lot of talk about the fact that um, Western states in particular the US you know ought to have intervened militarily in order to stop the genocide um, so there is this kind of question hovering in the background about what are the legal limits here um, on conduct for uh, states when it comes to dealing with genocide you know is it ever legitimate? to use military force to go into another state and stop a genocide. Obviously, the responsibility to protect doctrine would suggest that, yes, it is. A lot of the intervening states are trying to walk a line where they say, no, never, but also you've got to make sure that if you are even remotely thinking about this, that you undertake your due diligence to make sure that there is, in fact, genocide occurring, that it's not just used as a pretense. So that's that kind of abusive interpretation of the genocide convention argument here. So there's these kinds of layers of argument. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where the court positions itself. The court's not going to want to say you can go and invade another country if there is a genocide, because that is going to fundamentally undermine Article 2.4 of the Charter, the fundamental prohibition on the use of force. So the court's not going to want to say that. But whether it leaves open any gaps at all, uh, will be will be interesting to see. Just coming back to this range of interventions, are you allowed to say whether you have a favourite? Do you, do you have one that you really think? Oh, I love the the way this is crafted, or the the detail in this, or or oh yes, that's an argument I'm thought about. Which is your favourite? Yeah, g- great question. So let me think. I haven't done. I haven't read Spain, so um, I can't include them. But Sweden, I actually thought did a really good job. Their submissions were very comprehensive. Pleasing to the eye, they used Garamond font. But I think probably the most effective has to be the UK. It really, the UK has a lot of experience before the court. And I think it really showed in the way that they structured their submissions. Um, they very clearly dealt with jurisdiction and merits separately. Um, you know, it's a very lengthy submission, 35-ish pages, um, you know, covers all the bases um, and doesn't leave anything to chance. So, um, yeah, so I think if I really had to pick a favourite, probably, you know, close, close, close between those two. Yeah, we've kind of covered a little bit on uh, states' obligations, but uh, I was looking back uh, at a piece that you had written earlier, and it's the piece we think that got you onto a list uh, banned by Russia. So congratulations there, that states have some specific obligations under the Genocide Convention, and they should actually be looking at whether Russia itself is committing genocide in Ukraine. Can you kind of expand on that a little for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, no, I have indeed been formally sanctioned by Russia. So that's, um, that's definitely going on my CV. What is interesting here is, of course, the case at hand, Ukraine versus Russia, um, is based upon the fact that Russia has accused Ukraine of genocide and it's a complete furphy and everyone kind of knows it. What is now really interesting is this question about whether Russia itself is in fact committing genocide in Ukraine. And what my co-author Dominique and I said in this piece was, if it appears to be the case that Russia is committing genocide against Ukraine, then there are particular obligations that arise for states. So even if it's not 100% certain, there are still things that states can and should do. Because the ICJ has said in some of its previous genocide case law that these obligations kick in as soon as a state becomes aware or should normally have learned of the existence of a serious risk of genocide. And I think we can all say with absolute confidence that the amount of media that has been covered, all the images coming out of Ukraine, there's no way a state could sort of say, no, I didn't realise this was going on. So, you know, for obvious reasons, waiting until after the genocide has been completed isn't sufficient. So, you know, what are these obligations on states? Well, the convention is actually completely silent on what it is that states should do. The ICJ has said previously that the obligation is one of conduct and not of result. So you don't have to absolutely stop the genocide. I mean, that would be an impossible legal obligation on other states. But they have said you essentially need to do what you can. You need to do what you can to prevent the genocide as far as possible. So to that end, it's kind of like a due diligence standard. Once you learn that a genocide is taking place, do everything in your power to stop it. But probably, as we're about to find out, short of military force. So, you know, things like the economic sanctions that are currently um, in place, that would be a part of that regime, for example. But it's a question of saying, you know, and that was the point of our piece, was saying, look, just... A little bit of sanctioning here or there, but doing it in a way that's not particularly inconvenient to your own economic situation, that's not enough necessarily to meet this due diligence standard. You know, you're not really applying the screws to Russia and preventing them from carrying on doing what it is that they're doing. So other things like providing military assistance to Ukraine in the forms of, you know, vehicles and arms and that kind of thing could also, uh, I think, go some way to meeting that requirement under the Genocide Convention to assist um, in the prevention of a genocide. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, anything short of actual military intervention, I think is, is probably where that line should be, should be drawn. Um, yeah, obviously to prevent abusive interpretations in the future. Am I correct in thinking that most of what the court has said previously about genocide stems from the Bosnia, Serbia slash former Yugoslavia genocide case? Because in that one case where the court did rule about the Genocide Convention, uh, at least in my memory that I covered, uh, they did talk about state responsibility and said that the state of Serbia or the former Yugoslavia, as it was then, uh, did not do enough to stop the genocide and actually provided material aid and, and support for people fighting in Bosnia. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you, you've got a situation where it would be... Unlikely. I mean, obviously, the situation in, in, in the former Yugoslavia was somewhat unique in that you had state entities that had particular power to control the situation that was going on, but with lots and lots of non-state entities and other kind of militaries that were kind of involved. This is a bit different because you've got two, you know, recognised states, one invading another and committing a genocide in, internally within that country. So the ability of 
other states, external states, to do much is, is of course, inherently limited if you say you can't go in with your military. Um, so I think it's a question of saying to states, look, realise, please, that it's not just a political thing. Uh, you know, you're not just sanctioning Russia because you're like, oh, naughty Russia, that was very bad of you. You know, here's, here's a few fairly minor economic sanctions. Actually saying, no, there is a serious risk of genocide taking place. We've seen some evidence of that. And you actually have a legal obligation, not just a moral or political obligation, to assist Ukraine to the extent that you can to prevent this genocide from taking place. If we kind of move it on a little bit towards what we might have some sense of in terms of on the ground in Ukraine, how soon can you kind of work out whether there is an actual other genocide, a Russian, for example, or some individuals in Russia, genocide going on in in Ukraine. If we think back right the way back in in April, uh, the US president, Joe Biden, was talking specifically about Russia committing genocide, suggesting somehow it has become clearer and clearer that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is trying to wipe out the idea of being able to be Ukrainian. So, how do you work out whether there's a genocide going on? It's a great question. And obviously, opinions do actually differ. I mean, even this week, I kind of did a bit of a look around at what the various views are. And, you know, not everyone agrees that there is genocide taking place. And this is one of the problems with genocide as a crime, because it involves such enormous numbers or such, you know, sort of horrific acts but, all, you know, so it's, a, it's kind of like a numbers game, which is an awful thing to say. And that's often something that my students ask. They say, well, how many people does it take to, you know, to, to die to make a genocide? And I say, well, it's not, it's not just about that. You've also got this mental element. And that's always the most difficult part to prove is this intention to wipe out a group of people because you can commit mass murder. And that's a crime against humanity and, and a war crime, but it doesn't necessarily amount to genocide. So there are different opinions out there at the moment about whether we've kind of crossed that threshold for genocide. My personal opinion is, yeah, we have. Because I think what's extraordinary here is we've seen the, the physical evidence, you know, which has just been horrific. You know, if you look at the elements of genocide, you know, killing members of the group, you know, tick. Uh, the UN's documented at least 5,000 civilian deaths and the Ukraine authorities suggest it could be vastly higher. You've got causing serious bodily and mental harm. We've seen evidence of torture coming out of Izium, you know, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction. I mean, the whole, you know, invasion counts as that. And then forcibly transferring children. You know, we, we have seen this taking place. Families are being taken across the border and then broken up and some sent to Siberia. Children are being, you know, re-educated, essentially. In fact, the minister, the, the Russian minister for children, like yesterday, was saying, oh, it's so great. You know, they love being Russian now. You know, so it's extraordinarily explicit what is happening physically. And then you've got the, the mens rea side of it, the intention to wipe out a group or in whole or in part. And again, you know, Putin's statements, statements in the media, you know, state-owned newspapers are making these unbelievably explicit genocidal statements. You know, there is no such thing as the Ukraine, you know, it's um, it was a mistake, we should, we should wipe it out completely. It's all there. You know, it really is all there. And I think at this point, if you are saying, no, no, I'm not quite sure if it's genocide or genocidal intent, I kind of think you've got your head in the sand a bit here. It's it's really, 
you know, for me, it's quite clear. And so, you know, there really is an imperative on, on states to, to act to um, pale Russia, basically, out of Ukraine again. Are you surprised at how explicit it is when uh, the Russian Minister for Children says, you know, we're going to teach all these children Russian? I see all the genocide scholars on Twitter doing screenshot and save this. In a way, it's something that you don't expect to see anymore. I mean, we had the opening of the Kabuga trial uh, for the Rwanda genocide yesterday, and there was a lot of talk about this uh, Radio Television Libre de Mille Collines, which was the hate speech radio. And you kind of think like, there were, there are these trials, there are these convictions, like, wouldn't you at least try to kind of hide what you're doing? It surprises me a bit at how explicit it is. Yeah, it's really, I feel the same way. It's really quite amazing to watch. And it does have echoes of, of Rwanda, which, but of course, you know, that was that was in the early 90s. I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, you know, all the, you know, television in everyone's, you know, room. It was, it was radio and people heard about the radio later and all, you know, there was a delay in finding out about all this stuff. You know, we're witnessing it live, which is just incredible. But I, I think in a way... I'm not necessarily surprised if you kind of come at it from a perspective of what Russia is doing in general. I mean, Russia has fundamentally broken its promise to the international community as, as, a, as a permanent member of the Security Council by invading Ukraine in the first place, starting in 2014 in Crimea. Um, it has clearly, under Putin, decided to hell with the rule of law internationally. We just don't. We're just not even worried about that anymore. So there's not even a pretense of attempting to uphold the international rule of law anymore. In fact, they've become very adept at this double speak, you know, flipping things on its head and saying, oh, look, you all, you know, it's evidence of a Western conspiracy against Russia and so on. It's quite dystopian almost, actually, to, to witness. And, and I think we're going to have to see regime change. I'm not getting myself off this list anytime soon with what I'm saying, but I, I think the way that the regime in Russia currently is has demonstrated abundantly that it is not in the slightest bit concerned about its obligations in respect to genocide, about its obligations under the UN Charter. It just doesn't give two hoots about international law at all. And I think the only way we're going to see that change is if we see regime change in Russia, which has gone slightly off the path of the question that you originally asked. But it's it's really extraordinary what's what's happening. Uh, where's your best guess of where we're going to see a genocide case related to the invasion? Look, it's it, it could it depends on what you want to achieve, really, where we're going to see a case. So obviously, we've already got the Ukraine-Russia case at the court, and it's possible, based on some hints and the way that the Ukraine framed its um, submissions during the provisional measures, it's possible that they could look to change slightly the angle of their argument and say that Russia is in fact committing genocide. So we want the court to find that there was no genocide committed by Ukraine and there was genocide committed by Russia. They may bring a separate case or any state could bring a case to the ICJ. We've just had in the Gambia, Myanmar genocide case. We've just had the court confirm that the genocide convention is erga omnes partes. Any state party can bring a case alleging genocide against a potential offender state. So we've had that confirmed, no question, you know, public interest standing when it comes to genocide. So really anyone could bring a case against Russia. But of course, what's that going to achieve? Obviously, I'm an ICJ scholar. I'm a big fan of the ICJ. But in reality, what's it going to do? Not a lot. Russia has already demonstrated it doesn't care and it's not going to get involved. 
certainly under the current regime, they're not going to respond to a judgment from the court in a favourable kind of a way. Then you're looking at the ICC. Well, yes, I mean, ICC could be your jam because unlike the problem with the crime of aggression, where they're prohibited from investigating Russia, genocide falls absolutely under um, the prosecutor's remit and the prosecutor is currently gathering evidence. So we could very well see genocide-based prosecutions at the International Criminal Court. But of course, the question is, who? Who is your defendant? Who can you get your hands on? Who's committing these crimes? Who's responsible for them? How do you get them before the court? That's a big practical question. And same again for universal jurisdiction, because there's lots of states that have universal jurisdiction over genocide crimes in their domestic law statutes. But again, it's a question of actually physically getting your hands on the people um, in order to, you know, put them through a trial and see what the results are. So it's really difficult. This is one of those areas where it's almost not quite... The law is still there and the law is framing things and the law is sitting in the background. But really what we need right now is, you know, the journalists and the investigators, um, the prosecutorial teams on the ground gathering evidence, making sure that the evidence doesn't go stale while this is happening because the legal system courts, they're going to come into play a lot later, you know, years probably down the track. They're not going to be able to solve the crisis right now. Thank you very much for walking us through the whole procedural romp of the ICJ. And as an ICJ wonk, I'm going to ask you some of our asymmetrical haircuts questions. And, and one of the new ones we have is, what is your favorite court case to talk about? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Okay, my favorite is my least favorite. So I love talking about the Marshall Islands cases because... From a procedural point of view, they were very interesting. Obviously, it was only by the deciding vote of the judge that the decision was made, extremely strong dissents. And of course, as a proceduralist, it was this whole question of what is a dispute? And the court, you know, basically chucked the cases out because it doesn't like to ever talk about nuclear weapons. So I really think the court kind of got it wrong there and it's all terrible. But at the same time, I love talking about it for that reason, because there's lots of interesting stuff going on in those cases. And our other asymmetrical haircuts question is always, what are you listening to, binge watching, reading that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay, so I actually have a good answer for this question, believe it or not. I am currently reading a trilogy by an Australian author called Frank Morehouse, and it's called the Edith Trilogy. I think the first book is Cold Light, or one of the books is called Cold Light, and there's two others. But what's great about these books is they follow a fictional character who's a diplomat at the League of Nations. And there are real League of Nations people and real events and the disarmament conference and all of these things happening in the background. And we're seeing it all happen through the lens of this fictional character. And it is just, it's brilliantly written. The second book in the trilogy won a, won a prize. And I'm just loving it because it's kind of like living through these incredible moments where, you know, people were trying to create the first ever truly universal, you know, well, truly universal was mostly, you know, Europe, but, you know, inverted commas, truly universal organ that, of course, was, was the progenitor for the United Nations. So highly recommend that to your readers, uh, listeners. Great. Thank you so much, Juliet, for uh, spending time running through everything for us. Yes, thank you very much. And we did have a Ukrainian colleague lined up to talk with you, but they had to uh, bow out. That's the reason you had Juliet alone. But Juliet alone is also super interesting. Thank you so much, Juliet. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. 
this was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionotics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.